Welcome to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, where we examine important events and aspects of the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Professor Rob McLaughlin, former Naval Officer and Director of the Australian Centre for the Study of Armed Conflict and Society at the University of New South Wales campus at the Australian Defence Force Academy in Canberra. This series is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales and is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia and the Submarine Institute of Australia. In this episode, we will discuss the Royal Australian Navy's involvement in operations in Russia after World War I. To discuss this little-known episode in the RAN's history, I'm joined by a distinguished panel. They are Father Michael Head, who is Superior of Campion House in Melbourne. He was formerly Vice-Rector of the Jesuit Theological College in Melbourne. Michael is both a Jesuit and a Naval Historian and has a particular interest in naval operations in Russia in this period. Commander Greg Swindon is a naval historian at the Sea Power Centre Australia, and Dr David Stevens, who wrote In All Respects Ready, the award-winning history of the RAN in World War I. Thank you all for joining me. Uh, Michael Head, can you explain the political situation in Russia at the end of World War I, and why was there some foreign intervention? It was a very complex situation. Uh, the British and uh, Allied had intervened into Russia uh, for another year before this. Um, up in Archangel and Murmansk, they'd interfered in, in 1918 um, because the Germans had invaded southern Finland and uh, the result was the loss of all the British submarines had been in the Baltic. And the, the conservative Finnish uh, forces had retreated from southern Finland and were seizing... Uh, Bolshevik um, positions south of Archangel and so a sort of war was going on uh, in that region and the British who had been supplying Russia with uh, munitions and food and so on uh, via Archangel continued up there so the conflict was running up there before the war finished. Also in the Caspian Sea since 1917 the British had been involved there because Turkey had invaded Armenia and Azerbaijan and seized the city of Baku. And there were British, British had armed a number of ships. Uh, they were supported in their campaign against the Turks by Cossack armies and generally what we would call white Russian forces. This caused the Bolsheviks to react in the Caspian Sea by sending warships from the Baltic down, down the Volga River into the Caspian Sea. It was, um, that conflict had been going on for a different reason, um, but people down there didn't really know what was happening. A lieutenant colonel there, F.J. French, who was the political officer for the British down there, commented, I know nothing about the British policy but I believe there is such a thing. And he was supposed to be the political person. Then in the Pacific, um, there was, um, on the start of January 1912, 1918, um, the uh, Japanese battleship, the British cruiser Suffolk, and the USS Brooklyn arrived in Vladivostok. And they had two reasons for being there. One was 600,000 tonnes of military supplies were in Vladivostok, and they didn't want those to go to the Bolsheviks. 
that there was a threat that Bolsheviks might um, come into uh, might might sort of come into the war on the German side, and the um, and there's also the, the Czech Legion who had been formed and uh, in Russia, and they were trying to get out of Russia now. So the Allied powers were trying to help them escape from the divisions in Russia. So they were the three areas going on. The the other problem was that the Allied governments at the time uh, didn't understand what was going on in Russia. They sort of viewed it as a two-way war, white versus red. Unfortunately, the anti-Bolshevik side was very divided. There were socialist groups who were anti-communist. Um, there was autonomous regions like the Ukraine after the end of the war, uh, the Caucasus countries, Cossacks, etc. There were conservative groups that were fighting the Bolsheviks. There was the Constitutional Democrat forces, another group of people. The Volunteer Army in the southern, and Admiral Kornilov. So the place is very divided. Um, and uh, the, uh, this, was a, this was an issue for, uh, for, Ru for Russia and for intervention by allies at the time. Obviously, they couldn't get into the Baltic or the Black Sea until the war actually finished. I think that's about state at the moment. Well, David, as Michael said, this is a very complicated strategic and political situation, immediate post-war in and around Russia. So what Australian warships were in this part of the world at the time and why were they there? We actually had a uh, quite a relatively large, at least in terms of numbers, uh, contingent of warships in uh, Europe at the time. And in the Mediterranean, we had um, our, the six units of our destroyer squadron um, who had been operating um, supporting the Otranto Barrage, keeping the Austro-Hungarian Navy from getting into the uh, Mediterranean, and in particular the submarines. And they'd been doing that for well over a year um, as the, war, uh, the, the latter part of the war. Um, once the, um, the armistice had come, they had started to move across, and they were, in fact, they were... Um, and the, they'd moved over to the uh, eastern part of the Mediterranean and were starting to operate in the Aegean and eventually um, into the, uh, um, once the Turkish armistice had happened, into the Sea of Amara. So we had the six destroyers there uh, in the area. But then there was also the cruiser HMAS Brisbane, which had been operating in the Pacific and the Indian Ocean uh, earlier in the war. And it was being sent to the Mediterranean um, as the war was completing, mainly because there was not such a, a need for it in the Australian area. And um, she actually hadn't reached the Mediterranean by the time of the armistice, um, but she entered the Mediterranean and was also available for operations uh, at the end of the war. Well, Greg, in that broader context, in, in that broader strategic context. And what was the role of the British and the Australian naval units in the Black Sea more particularly? Yeah. Well, the, the roles were many and varied. And uh, we have to uh, remember that uh, the Australians were operating as part of the British force, so they weren't an, an Australian force on their own. Uh, after the, uh, the armistice had been signed and the, the Australian and British uh, ships were able to get through the Dardanelles uh, into, uh, into the Black Sea. The main role they were undertaking was ensuring that uh, the Ottoman Empire, uh, Turkey, was agreeing and uh, conducting uh, 
part their role in the in the in surrendering and uh, undertaking the demilitarisation of that uh, of that area. But there are a lot of other roles that the Australian ships were involved in. Uh, they were used uh, in many respects to move troops around. Uh, the road systems uh, in that part of the world were quite poor, so moving troops to uh, different ports so they could. Uh, oversee the surrender of Turkish forces, uh, also used to uh, carry dispatches, you know, the days before the internet and mobile phones, uh, getting information uh, around to various uh, forces in various areas, often relied upon a ship carrying those those dispatches. As the, uh, the forces began to move further north towards, uh, into the Black Sea and towards uh, Russia, Again, they then started to move troops into uh, into those areas, particularly to Sebastopol, uh, carrying dispatches to the various forces there, so that the senior officers knew what was going on. Moving uh, supplies, uh, uh, virtually there was virtually nothing in Sebastopol that was of any use to them. So you know, moving ammunition, moving fuel, uh, moving food, moving vehicles in some cases, you know, motorbikes and small trucks. So they, were, you know, basically the supply line and the troop movement for the British forces in that part of the world. Well, David Stevens, can you tell us a little about some of the key officers in the Australian ships at the time? Well, there's two particularly worthy of mention. Um, the destroyer squadron was headed by uh, Commander Arthur Bond, uh, who was the Commander D, um, and he was, he was in Swan. And he was an RN officer. He'd come, he'd had previous experience in the North Sea earlier in the war, and he'd actually come out and joined the Australian um, destroyer. Um, well, it was actually half the, the destroyer squadron, which was a division, on the China station, um, and taken command of the three destroyers there for a while. Um, at the time, we had two destroyer divisions, and um, the other one tended to operate in Australian waters, while the other one was op operating in the um, in the China Station. Warren ended up on the China Station, um, and uh, the commander of the other division was a, um, a commander, uh, uh, William Warren, who was an Australian officer, and um, they didn't get on terribly well, and uh, Bond was very upset when the destroyers were ordered to the Mediterranean and the Australian Naval Board put um, Warren in charge of the squadron rather than Bond, and he actually threatened to resign. Um, eventually, so he was not in a happy mood when he was on his way to the Mediterranean with the rest of the ships. Um, what actually, as it turned out, um, William Warren um, died um, during that deployment uh, in the um, in the Adriatic. Um, he had malaria from his time, his own time operating in the Pacific, and um, was found. We ended up in hospital and was found one day floating in the harbour at Brindisi, and so Bond got his wish of commanding the rest of the squadron. Um, and um, he continued throughout the, uh, served as the commander of the squadron for most of the rest of the time until he in fact fell sick and, and lost the job as well. But during this period, he was commanding Swan. The other interesting officer was the captain of HMAS Brisbane, the cruiser, which was a chap named uh, Captain Claude Cumberledge. He was another Royal Naval officer because you've got to understand that at this time a lot of our officers were actually Royal Naval officers on loan. But 
Cumberland, you might say, almost went native. Um, he had um, he was a very experienced seaman. He before he came out in 1913 to command the Australian destroyers squadron, which at that stage was actually only one or two destroyers at any one time, he'd actually had about eight or nine commands in the Royal Navy. Um, and he'd got a little bit of um, tired of wandering around in bad weather. And uh, one of the reasons he wanted to come out to Australia was um, for the sun. <laughs> and the fact that he only had two destroyers to command at that stage didn't really matter to him. And so he had a quite a very interesting war. Um, his claim to fame was that he was at sea um, a thousand miles from land um, on the um, first day of the war and the same on the second. A little bit of an exaggeration, but he certainly spent a lot of his time in command at sea during this war. And he went from the destroyers to the cruiser Encounter, to the cruiser Brisbane, and eventually to the flagship HMAS Australia, and then HMAS Melbourne afterwards. So he had a very long career working in the Australian Navy. And in fact, when he went back to England after the war, he, um, he ended up retiring because there was nothing for him to do. But he was a very interesting character, um, also known for walking around with a parrot on his shoulder um, when he was in on the China Station. So he was the commander of Brisbane, and as I said, uh, Arthur Bond was the uh, captain of uh, HMAS Swan and the commander of the Destroyer Division. Well, Michael Head, what problems did the Allied naval forces encounter in working with the White Russians? The first problem they had was they didn't have any information. So when the uh, war finished the, uh, and the British decided to move into Sevastopol, they sent the, the Bet Dreadnought Superb and Temeraire. Their orders were to seize all the ships that the Germans were occupying. When they got there, they found no Germans. They'd all fled when the war was finished. And uh, most of uh, Sevastopol was under occupation by uncontrollable Bolsheviks, which is, explains why uh, the Brisbane took uh, Marines and something up there to try and some peace. Further west, uh, the French were occupying Odessa and a couple of other cities. One of the cities was under attack by the Bolsheviks, and uh, they had to rearm a group of Germans to defend the city, uh, which they did. The, um, the problem, that was one of the problems, they didn't know what they were going to do. Then slowly the whites asserted themselves and drove the Bolsheviks back out of uh, southern Russia and, and Ukraine. The other problem was that the, the uh, Allied navies, the French particularly, uh, their crews were very divided and many of them were strong supporters of the Bolsheviks. Uh, and so much so that at one stage three of the battleships had mutinies um, to deal with, which they finally managed to settle, but it did, so, it did sort of slow down the whole of the operation. Uh, it was the French army who was to be supposed to be occupying the Crimea, and they pulled out um, because they didn't really have the ability to fight the Bolsheviks considering the divisions in their own forces. The uh, result of that was that the British uh, um, wrecked the machinery of all the pre-dreadnought battleships in the Russian Navy so they could never sail again if they fell into the hands of the Bolsheviks. They did actually tow the, the one dreadnought, Volya, back to Constantinople and thereby saved it. Um, the, that was the major problems facing the Allies at the time. The other problem was the... the uh, 
whites themselves were the divided. Um, when the uh, British got in touch with Krasnov in the in uh, the, the Cossack area, he did not like General Donakin, who ultimately became the commander-in-chief of the white forces for the Civil War. So there was friction among the, uh, the principal leaders of the white side, and uh, eventually they managed to overcome most of that friction, um, but it didn't win the war for them. So the, uh, the problem of the major forces facing the naval forces in that area was what to do how were they going to implement a policy which was a bit vague? Well, Greg Swindon, our largest warship uh, in this particular theatre of operations was the cruiser HMAS Brisbane. What was she involved in? Well, as uh, David's already mentioned, uh, Brisbane arrived uh, in the eastern Mediterranean after the armistice had been signed. And uh, under Claude Cumberledge, her uh, commanding officer, she embarked uh, 345 Royal Marines at uh, Chanak, uh, in in Turkey on the 8th of December and then steamed at uh, a great rate of knots up to Sebastopol uh, to disembark those those uh, those men, which she did on the 10th of uh, December. Uh, Sebastopol was uh, unstable. In fact, they'd re- as uh, Michael's mentioned, they'd rearmed some of the stray German troops to help defend the uh, city. So the Royal Marines arrived and part of their duty was basically to restore law and order in the city. Uh, one of uh, Brisbane's officers uh, wrote at the time, uh, and I'll quote him, our Marines were landed to police the city, and if ever a city needed policing, Sebastopol did. The rounding up of the Bolsheviks and putting an end to their ghastly ways and filthy practices and their habit of creating dirt and ruin of everything they touched was a large order. It was with deep regret that Brisbane received the order to Smyrna, where she was then sent to uh, supervise minesweeping operations and to leave others to attend the business here. So she was only there briefly and basically to uh, to move uh, British Royal Marines into uh, into Sebastopol to help try and restore law and order, uh, which was going to be a pretty tall option for them. So, Greg, thinking about some of the other tasks that the RAN ships had... There was one task to take possession of a German U-boat. What happened there? That's a very interesting story. Uh, yeah, this uh, U-boat, UC-37, uh, was a mine-laying U-boat and ended the war in Sevastopol, which was quite odd. But uh, what had happened is the Germans had shipped uh, a number of partly constructed uh, U-boats down to the Adriatic during the war. Obviously, Austro-Hungary uh, owned uh, most of the Adriatic coastline at that point in time. And this was to uh, stop the submarines having to do the long transit around through uh, the English Channel, uh, Bay of Biscay, etc. So a number of German U-boats uh, were uh, constructed uh, in Austria-Hungary and they were then sent around through the Dardanelles to Constantinople where they formed the uh, German Constantinople Squadron of Submarines. They then operated in the eastern Mediterranean uh, conducting operations against uh, Allied forces there throughout the war. When the war ended, uh, UC-37 was the only submarine left of the original eight in the Constantinople squadron, and the Turks surrendered on the 31st of October. So the Germans basically said, we're leaving and we're going to go to Sevastopol. The reason they went to Sevastopol was that that was actually, at that point in time, German territory. Under the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, the Russians had seceded a vast portion of the Ukraine and the Crimea to the Germans. 
The submarine arrived in Sebastopol. The Germans then surrendered on the 11th of November, you know, about two weeks after the, the Turks did. The uh, German crew of the submarine abandoned their submarine in the harbour and basically left and went back to Germany. So when the Allies arrived in Sebastopol, they found a number of uh, scuttled German uh, torpedo boat destroyers and this one submarine. Uh, as Michael's mentioned, it was quite unstable there and they didn't want to uh, uh, leave the potential uh, submarine or the submarine for potential use by the uh, Bolshevik forces. So uh, Hewan, one of the Australian uh, uh, destroyers, was tasked with towing uh, UC-37 out of Sebastopol and taking it back to uh, Constantinople. David Stevens, in your book, you say the most complicated task, although that sounds complicated enough, uh, for the RAN ships was the mission to the Don Republic. Can you tell us this part of the story? Yeah, it's it's really um, the specific um, duties of the um, destroyer Swan, which, as I mentioned, was commanded by um, Arthur Bond. Um, one of the problems for the British commanders, as Michael has made reference to already, is the, the complex political and military situation that was going on there and the need for the British commanders basically to know what was going on, um, get reports, not just for themselves, but to pass back to the Foreign Office, etc., uh, about who should be supported, were they likely to succeed, all these sort of issues. And um, because um, one, of the, one of these particular areas, the Don Republic, um, which in charge of the, uh, the Ataman of the Dons, um, General Krasnov, which again, um, Michael has mentioned, um, this particular area, um, hard to reach because you had to get into the Sea of Azov. And um, the commander told um, Swan and the French destroyer Bisson, which was commanded by a uh, Capitaine de Corvergeon Cochin, um, to go and find out what was going on, really. And they made their the mission went between the fourth and the sixteenth of December of 1918. They made their way into the Sea of Azov, um, and then uh, to Maripol, and they took on board a um, a Russian, a former Imperial Russian Navy admiral, Admiral uh, Anatol Kononov, with a and a, and a um, interpreter, and then a party of of around fifteen, which included the commanders of both Swan and the French destroyer uh, Bisson went on a, um, a fact-finding mission, for want of a better term, into the Cossack territory, and including the, the headquarters. And they met the local po populace, met the local leaders, um, were taken to church, were, were fated with parties, are really well looked after. And part of the reason, of course, is that um, the, the, the Cossacks, um, well, the Don Republic, and uh, General um, uh, Krasnov in particular, wanted to be seen to be having Allied support to strengthen his position. But of course, the problem was for the, the Allies was that although they wanted the information, um, they weren't empowered to actually offer any support. So they were there to um, offer what you might call sympathetic inquiry as to what was going on, but certainly to, not to make any commitments. And eventually they were heading off to uh, as far away as, as um, you know, 300 miles inland. And um, unfortunately, as during this mission, the, uh, the Bolsheviks made a, a major advance and they had to be withdrawn. So it was complicated 
simply because you were trying to do, they were trying to get information from a foreign country well inland to know, and then, but they did make a, a very good report back at the end about what they'd found. Well, Michael Head, I understand Commander Bond and some of his men received Russian decorations for their work. Can you talk a little about how the Russians uh, viewed such honours and how they allocated them? Um, Krasnov uh, presented Bond and the French captain, Jean Cochin, with the fourth class medal of the Order of St. Vladimir, which was the second highest level of medals in the whole of Imperial Russia. The St. Andrews system were higher. And you say in Australia, where you've got the Order of Australia, uh, A-C-A-O-A-M, and then a medal underneath that. Well, they the same here. Now, this was a, a very, very high decoration, second highest in Russia. The other officers in this uh, delegation received um, a second-class medal from the Order of St Anna, which was slightly lower down. And the motto of this particular medal was to do with love, justice, piety, fidelity, and for military service, for valour and distinguished service to the military. And then the naval ratings, who were part of the expedition, received a medal at St Anne as well. Krasnov then later wrote to King George V and the President of France um, to allow these people, these men, to wear the medals, which was unusual at that time. Um, and uh, we've got to ask, why did he bother doing that? Well, um, he wanted to raise the morale of the team of people who came to see him, Bond's team, uh, hoping that they would talk about their trip a lot to other officers and other people in the British Navy. Um, but it was, uh, it was an effort to give the diplomatic team a very positive experience so they'd tell other about it. And then when they got permission to wear the medal, um, for events at which they are wearing medals, it could create a conversation. People say, oh, what was that medal for? Um, so they're hoping that would happen as well. And also it was idea to give the Krasnov government an idea that they were actually another government. Uh, so if King George V uh, gave permission, which he finally did in March, um, it would seem that the, the Krasnov were a part of a government, that they were talking to the British government. And so they were trying to create their own reputation as well. So these medals were significant to the people, the people amongst which the team of mixing and the governments uh, of uh, the Cossack state. Well, Greg Swinnon, it said that the Australian torpedo destroyers were particularly suited to this work. Why was that? Well, I think any destroyer would have been suited to this work. You know, um, they needed to get through, that was a Swan and Bisson, needed to get through the Strait of Kerch, uh, which has been in the, uh, the newspapers recently. Indeed. Uh, they needed to get through there. It was winter time and uh, there was a, a shallow draft. Uh, the, uh, the report that came through was that uh, as they were going through the, uh, the Strait, that uh, mud was being churned up. Uh, potentially indicating to the uh, commanding officer that they had about a foot of water underneath their keel uh, to get through. So it was quite shallow. Uh, remembering this is December as well, so it's the Northern Hemisphere, it's winter. Uh, they had to contend with uh, snowstorms and, uh, and ice at times. Uh, so it was a, 
a fairly uh, difficult transit for uh, the two destroyers to get through the Strait of Kerch and then up to uh, Mariupol uh, to undertake their task. So, David Stevens, when did the RAN ships eventually leave, and what did they? When? Sorry, I'll start that again. <laughs> David Stevens, when did the RAN ships eventually leave, and when did they finally get back to Australia? Well, that's a bit of an epic journey in itself. Uh, you've got to remember that the Royal Australian Navy at the time was actually had actually been passed to the Admiralty for control, which means that the Australian government didn't have the ability to just say where they went needed them to go. But one of the advantages at the end of the war was that there was a lot of spare capacity going, um, and the Australian Navy saw this as a wonderful opportunity, uh, sorry, industrial capacity in the UK going, and the um, Australian Navy saw this as a wonderful opportunity to get all their ships upgraded and uh, refitted at um, not much cost. And all the ships made their way slowly um, from, the, from the Mediterranean and those that were already in the North Sea um, over to the UK to um, be refitted, be modified, be updated. Uh, Brisbane, for example, she'd come out from Australia still with a single pole mast and she got a tripod mast and the latest fire control equipment. Um, the destroyers all needed major refits and modifications to get them back up to, to scratch again. Um, and the, so the, the entire, which was really most of the Australian Navy, which was in the area, had this wonderful opportunity to use the resources of, uh, the, of the Royal Navy to get themselves up to scratch. So it wasn't until um, well into 1919 that they were ready to start returning to Australia. And in fact, not until June that the fleet started coming back. And they came back in a number of different section, uh, different groupings. Um, we'd been given some submarines by the, the Royal Navy and they came back under escort uh, in one group with the, um, the Australian um, submarine support ship Platypus, which had been serving in the Royal Navy. Australia and Brisbane came back together. Melbourne, the cruiser, came back with the destroyers. And so these different groups were, part, were, were coming back gradually. They were all back by July, uh, just in time, in fact, for the, um, the major peace celebrations in Australia. The Treaty of Versailles had been signed on the 28th of June, and as a Empire, British Empire-wide celebration, the 19th of July was set aside for a, um, a peace um, for Peace Day, and um, in Sydney they made a massive. Uh, it was a massive procession of the services and the nurses and everyone else on the 19th of July, um, basically to celebrate the end of the war. And so all the ships were um, back in time for that, and uh, they led the parade. And much was made of the fact that they'd they'd been serving throughout the the four years of war. Um, Having said that, it wasn't until the 1st of August 1919 that the Governor-General um, signed the order confirming the reversion of the Royal Australian Navy um, back to the Commonwealth. And after that, we could say the war was really over. Well, Greg Swindon, we've talked about the ships and the units, but there were still also some Australian naval officers involved in operations to counter the Bolsheviks. Who were they? Yeah, that's another interesting story there, Rod. Uh, after the Australian ships came back, uh, from the Mediterranean and from the, the Black Sea. There were no Australians operating uh, in that part of the world. But by chance, uh, in 1918, uh, the graduating class of from the Royal Australian Naval College uh, was sent across to the UK to join various British ships for training. 
So by luck, uh, 12 midshipmen who had arrived in England in uh, early 1919 and technically had missed the war, uh, 12 of them found themselves on board uh, two British battleships, uh, Ramillies and uh, Revenge. And in 1920, still serving on board those two British battleships, they found themselves in the Black Sea as part of the British force operating there, supporting the, uh, the White Russians. Uh, again, this was uh, a show of force uh, to support the White Russians. Uh, the men on board, uh, the Royal Marines on board, could be used as landing parties uh, to provide support and security. And in fact, there are a number of uh, times when landing parties were put ashore uh, onto the Crimea, mainly into Sevastopol, as a show of force or to provide support for the White Russian forces. Uh, typical of uh, naval officers of that time, they did take uh, the opportunity to uh, do some sightseeing, and uh, those 12 midshipmen uh, went out to some of the Crimean war battlefields, uh, particularly the Valley of Death, where the Charge of the Light Brigade had taken place, uh, to basically have a look at what had occurred there. Uh, despite the fact that they had missed the war proper, as many thought, uh, they still ended up uh, being awarded the British War Medal and the Victory Medal, uh, because service in the Black Sea uh, during that period uh, was qualifying service. And in fact, one of those uh, men, uh, midshipman, later Vice Admiral Roy Dowling, went on to become the Chief of Navy. Well, Michael Head, what do you think ultimately the, was the significance of the naval elements in the intervention? Could anything from the naval perspective have been done by any of the Allies which might have made a difference to the final result? The Navy was critical for any intervention in the Black Sea because uh, it, it just, even it's only a matter of providing transport and they also provided gunfire support um, and they also provided morale support because the inside uh, in Sevastopol itself where a lot of the uh, white Russian superiors and government officials were working, the presence of two or three or four British battleships in the harbour gave them a, an idea that this was strength coming from England. Um, as I mentioned at the start there, there were problems with the French. The French lost a battleship, the Mirabeau, uh, ran it aground, and it may have been run aground deliberately, but that's another issue. Um, and uh, it had to be, it was salvaged after being half stripped of armour and armament, and then scrapped. Um, it was, um, the, the Navy could not actually take an active role in much of the fighting, because most of the fighting was land fighting uh, in um, hundreds of miles away from the sea. As the white Russian forces collapsed, the Navy became very significant in rescuing people. They rescued a lot of uh, refugees, including a number of Jews and Christians, because there had been massacres of those around. Um, and they took them back to Constantinople, which was effectively under British occupation. And then they, uh, at one stage, well, the Russians, the Bolsheviks were coming along the Black Sea coast on the east coast. Um, the British battleships bombarded their supply line, which held them up a little bit, significantly, actually, um, bombarded by several battleships. So the, without, the, without the, the Navy in that area, they, uh, the, there could have been no intervention at all. The ultimate intervention in the war was extremely limited because of the difference away from the, uh, the coastline. 
And when the, uh, the White Russians finally collapsed and they fell back onto the Crimea and then into Sevastopol and then evacuated and sailed their ships south, um, the British also assisted with refugees and uh, some of the soldiers of the White Russians in evacuating that area. So there would have been no British intervention without the Navy and uh, they played a fairly critical role in enforcing British government policy. The British government policy at the time was also divided because the um, Labour Party, which was then quite small but rising rapidly, uh, wanted to campaign um, hands-off Russia campaign because they were supporting the Bolshevik area. So the British government was to, um, facing opposition in its own parliament and politics, um, which didn't did affect did not affect the British Navy. But as mentioned, the French Navy was divided and uh, it was affecting them too. Uh, so the, by, the, by 1919, late 1919, 1920, the French had effectively pulled out of the region. So um, that also contributed to the decline of the white Russian forces because initially the French had substantial numbers of soldiers in, uh, the, in both Ukraine and Crimea. Well, to conclude, can I ask each of you for your final thoughts on this remarkable and very little known chapter in Australian naval history? First you, David Stevens. I think there's uh, two aspects that's certainly worthy of um, making a point about. And the first is that the ships had been proved so flexible in their employment. Um, they had gone from wartime operations, um, sink, or attacking, searching for submarines, um, to diplomatic roles, to transporting ships, to acting in a whole different range of, of operations, um, the same ships, the same crews, instantaneous changes. I think that's a very important point to make. The second one is how easily these ships had fitted in to the Royal Navy and had operated mm. um, and in a professional, such a professional manner. The fact that the destroyer at Swan could be used for this rather important mission into the Don Republic um, showed complete confidence from the British commanders and what the ship officers and crew could do. The same with HMAS Brisbane when it was at Smyrna. Um, it had come from uh, the Australia station and ended up commanding British and French ships in a, in a mine-sweeping role. Um, complete confidence that the people who were in those ships could do the job and that the ships themselves were capable of it. Michael Head, some final thoughts from you. Um, just uh, one minor thought. Um, Greg mentioned these uh, Australian naval officers uh, who served um, as the uh, young men aboard the battleships, Ramillies and the um, Revenge. Um, the, uh, just one of them was a, a John Hurst Walker, Jefferson uh, Hurst Walker, um, who died in 1941 when his, uh, he was commanding HMOs Parramatta in the Second World War and was torpedoed by a U-boat. Um, but he was a personal friend of my uncle uh, right through the 1930s, who was, uh, worked in Sydney at the time. And uh, so whenever I see his name come up somewhere, I immediately think of... Uh, a wonderful individual that he was and a great service to the Australian Navy. And Greg Swindon. Well, more of an anecdote, and Michael previously mentioned that uh, operations were 
being undertaken in North Russia. And a number of Australians, particularly uh, ex-members of the first AIF, joined British forces uh, to uh, operate there in uh, in uh, September of 1919 through to January of 1920. And as is always the case, there was a sailor present. Um, one of the... Uh, the Tingara boys, who were young men who joined the RAN during World War One, uh, had been serving on board HMAS Encounter, which hadn't left the Australia station. So uh, he got a little bit bored and deserted, and uh, joined the uh, first AIF. He arrived in uh, England after the armistice, uh, a little bit too late to see active service, but uh, he was still pretty keen. So he uh, he enlisted in uh, what was known as the North Russian Relief Force, and served in in uh, Russia. Uh, in North Russia uh, from September 1919 until he returned to England in January 1920. Uh, that was uh, ordinary telegraphist uh, John Edward Bogue, uh, deserted the RAN and then served as uh, Private Edward Redmond in the North Russian Relief Force. So there's always a sailor present when these sort of things are happening. Indeed so. Well, sadly, that's all we have time for. My thanks to Father Michael Head, to Greg Swindon and to David Stevens. Thank you for joining us and for more information on the Australian Naval History Podcast Series, simply search for Naval Studies Group in your search engine. Goodbye for now.